Actions will take more time to have their full impact. It took a while for the credit system to freeze up. It's going to take a while for the credit system to thaw. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. Today is Friday, October 17th. It's about 4.14 p.m. here in New York. And uh, we always like to start the podcast, and by always, I mean for the last three days since we thought of it, with the Planet Money indicators. Our number one indicator is the TED spread, the measure of uh, interbank lending, the measure of movement through the economy. And Laura, you pointed out to me it's good news today, at least a little good news. Yeah, it's down below four. It's at 3.63. That's down 11% from the close yesterday of 4.08. That means, I guess you could sort of say that the key measure of global anxiety has fallen 11%. That's a lot, although in normal times it should be way below 1%, which is what we want to see. But we want to know what's actually happening um, on the front lines of the credit crisis. And so as we have done many times, we're turning to Tom Corona of Tradition Asia Securities. Hey, Tom. Hi, how are you? Good. How's it going? Where are you? You're you're driving home. Where are you right now? Yes, I just escaped from the office and I'm on my way home. So, do you have any good news for us? Was there were banks lending to each other for the first time in a month? Actually, uh, yes. Today was uh, quite uh, an interesting day. Uh, as you first mentioned, the Ted spread coming in. Lots of indication of treasury the easing up on treasury bills. Rates moving higher there. Uh, the, you know, the, the fear, the lack of uh, liquidity, people starting to move into other products and LIBOR coming down. So the TED spread uh, does narrow, and we saw some tremendous lending today, interbanks, uh, just in the one-month area, but it's baby steps. We're moving in the right direction. But uh, I'd say close to $10 billion worth trade $10 billion. In, the one, Ten- in the one month, and that is uh, quite a big day by any standards. Uh, so the spigots seem to be opening. Great. Tom Corona, Tradition Agile Securities, thank you so much. I know we'll be checking in with you again, and safe travels back home. Have a great weekend. We've been checking in so much with with Tom Corona and his uh, running partner, Will Aston Reese, and other people in New York, because this is, we're right in the epicenter of this credit crisis. But we do like to get Across the river. And the ocean. Across the ocean. And the other oceans. And the other oceans. And we really like it when we get to talk to Shuchajit Das. Uh, He's our favorite uh, Australian credit risk analyst. Let's just say he's our favorite credit risk analyst, uh, author of the lovely book, Traders, Guns, and Money. Uh, We asked him, where in the world would we go if we wanted to see the most interesting and powerful impact of this crisis on a country outside the U.S.? So Das pointed us in the direction of Iceland, which he described as the strangest, strangest, strangest place. That's three strangests? Three of them. It's a tiny island, about the size, I suppose, of Cuba. It's only got 300,000 people, and it now seems to be emerging as an epicenter of the credit crisis. To give you some idea, the stock market has collapsed. It was closed for a while, but they reopened it. It collapsed by 80%. Their currency has collapsed by about 95%. 
and they've had huge, huge problems, and it potentially the country could default on its debt. And this is actually a relatively advanced country. If the United States stock market dropped out by 80%, that would be cataclysmic, right? Absolutely. It's hard to fathom, really. Well, it's not really hard to fathom. I'll give you a little bit of history. I mean, Iceland is, the best way to describe it is it's a volcanic rock. And until 1973, was classified as a developing or an emerging country. And then in the 1990s, it underwent this most amazing, amazing boom. And the boom was actually built on money. Now, this may be very difficult to believe, but the whole of the Icelandic GDP, the banks actually have deposits of roughly 10 times the GDP. Now, to put that into perspective, the US one is probably close to one to one. So this whole tiny country decided that it was going to grow through banking. And of course, they also use some other things, which is they have a lot of geothermal energy, which is very clean energy. And Alcoa, for instance, has an aluminium plant in it. Now, this has led to some really, really bad puns. And some headlines come out like, Iceland, a tiny dynamo, loses steam. <laughs> but the whole point is, this economy became exactly like the US to some degree, but on a more extreme version, an economy driven by money. And their three banks had enormous ambitions. For instance, these banks, which are known as Kaputing, Landsbank, and Glitnir. And that's all they, they had? Three I, banks? I'm sorry, the three banks, that's it? There's the three banks. There's three major banks. And okay. they actually once said to me, one of the banks at least said to me, we want to be the Goldman Sachs of the Arctic. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay, there sorry. wasn't one at the time. <laughs> well, there certainly wasn't one. I don't know today they would have the same ambition. I guess they're now the Bear Stearns of the Arctic. Indeed, it is. And these banks raised this enormous amount of money and lent it around the world. And I actually knew very little about Iceland until about five, six years ago. And then I started to meet all these people. I said, what do you do? And they said, well, we are buying all these banks in Europe. We are buying all these banks in uh, um, England. And they were actually financing these lovely entrepreneurs, some of whom were quite dodgy Icelandic entrepreneurs, into buying all these businesses. All was done with debt. So in many ways, it is like the subprime problems in the U.S., but in a completely different way. And then, of course, this all came down like a house of cards, leading to terrible jokes, by the way, which I'll tell you in a second, in the last probably you know, two years. But to give you another idea of how there's blowback from this, these Icelandic banks were parts of parcels of debt, which were sold to European and American investors. And these three banks have now gotten themselves into trouble, and that's inflicting huge losses on these investors. For instance, one European investor wrote off in the last couple of days $1.6 billion on these packages of loans known as CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, very recently. So it's kind of a bizarre thing. You look at Iceland and think, hey, what's going to happen here? But it starts to affect other things. So in a way, what you're saying is that Iceland is kind of living out the nightmare that the United States was able to pull back from. Absolutely. Though, in many ways, uh, the U.S. is still not out of its nightmare. It's still asleep. It's still enjoying the nightmare or suffering from it. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects and how that flows through to the United States, how it gets out of it. I understand, Das, that – 
if Iceland defaults on its debt, that that's bad for whoever lent the money in the first place. But Correct. what happens to Iceland? Does someone else then sort of own parts of Iceland? What does that mean? Well, actually, it it doesn't mean a lot because you can't go in and take possession of Iceland. Though, uh, you know, some people would uh, like to do that. I think they would like to take uh, Bjork and Sigur Ross and rock bands like that because they're <laughs> right. pretty good. Right. But you can't actually do that. So what actually happens is Iceland essentially becomes a pariah. They can't borrow money. And usually what happens is we appoint a trustee in bankruptcy. It's actually the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. They come in and they tell the country that you have to do this, you have to tighten your belt, you can't spend money, you have to increase taxes, all of those things. And it impoverishes in a very, very major way the domestic population. And that's the tragedy. That is the real tragedy. You know, we're in New York, and, and I still find that unless I'm actually talking to people who work in the finance world in New York, and even though we're at the center of this crisis, you walk a block from Wall Street, and I know you'll be in New York next week, so you'll you'll be able to see this firsthand. You just don't feel you don't feel the crisis. It's not there yet. Uh, on you know, we use the cliche on Main Street. Is in a place like Iceland or Hungary or Korea, are people feeling it on the street? Is it like the crisis of 1998, where? You know, thousands, millions of people lost their jobs and politicians were, you know, practically strung up. Or, or is it still just a financial crisis there, too? No. In Iceland, as I think will happen in the United States, the crisis is starting to spread into Main Street. So citizens are now very, very worried. For instance, they were really worried about their money and their deposits with banks. So they were run on banks. Then also what happened is they were concerned because Iceland doesn't actually have any food production. They have to import all their food. And because the Icelandic currency has collapsed, the krona has collapsed, they were concerned about the price of food. So there was actually a run on supermarkets. They're worried about People starving to, to death. literally went up and bought up food. Wow. So when you when you make a run on a bank, you can look at people and say, well, that's kind of silly. But when you make a run on food, that is actually frightening to the wider herd, I think. That's right. That is exactly right. And effectively, I think one of the things is in the United States, and I think this is very common in the world, finance and these sorts of things that we're talking about sometimes seem extremely, extremely remote. And eventually what happens is these very remote events flow through into the real world in terms of firstly and most importantly jobs, the ability to borrow money to do very, very sensible things. And just generally, that drives things like the ability to spend, which ultimately affects businesses, investments. And that's actually what is actually happening at the moment. So, so uh, have they passed a point of no return? Are they – what's it you – know, I, I was with these bond traders today, and they were all still saying, well, maybe the U.S. will pull out of it. There will be a recession, but it won't be a horrible crisis. I mean, are, are these other victims we're talking about, they're just – it's over for them for a, while, for a long, long time? What, what's the range? Well, I, I think in the case of Iceland, there is a real fear that they will default because obviously their debts are often in U.S. dollars. So unlike the U.S., they can't print money. So this would be more like Argentina, that they cannot actually 
make the payments on their debt. So they have to sit down with their uh, lenders and say, we can't pay, what are we going to do? But that will obviously mean there is a huge, huge loss to the lenders. The U.S. is not quite in that position because all its debt is in its own currency, so it can actually print the money. But that, of course, has consequences like inflation and so forth. But in some of these countries, there are going to be huge problems. And this is one of the most scary bits about this current crisis, is it is now spreading, as you correctly point out, into Main Street through employment and those types of channels. But it's also flowing globally into the emerging markets. And there is real concern about some of these countries. Now, obviously, some of them will be okay, but some of them, I think, will have serious problems. And I don't know how Iceland will resolve itself, but it just shows you how scary all of this is. So uh, while Das was talking to us about Iceland, which sounds like a sort of magical place, our own Planet Money's own David Kestenbaum was spending time with, this says... Laura, you wrote this, that he was spending time with a wizard? Yeah, Caitlin wrote it, but it is true. He has been hanging out at Wharton. He's been going to their business boot camp, courtesy of the school. I don't know if they've just had it with us and they decide we need to know more or what. But this was a special week-long boot camp on business for journalists. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Wharton. Thank you, Wharton. David, come back and show us what you know. He sent us this email telling us about this great wizard guy, Jeremy Siegel. He's a professor of finance. He is called the Wizard of Wharton. And apparently, Mr. Wizard had some pretty strong words for Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson. Okay, so um, you're a professor. Yes. What grade do you give Henry Paulson? I give the uh, the plan a B, and I give his marketing of the plan an F. Uh, I, it was presented in a, in a very bad way. It was marketed in a bad way, and uh, um, it was it was the worst possible way to present a, a plan for rescue uh, to the U.S. Congress. In class, you said F minus. Yeah, I, well, if I could give an F, <laughs> if I could give an F minus, I would. Uh, it, I mean, I couldn't think of a worse way to come in in an imperious way and say this is the way it's going to be. I want seven hundred billion. Do with what I want. I, I, it's just incredible. And uh, you know, as it finally turns out, uh, you know, they're moving in a different direction than what they originally impl- in, in planned, which was to buy the distressed assets. And, of course, the first step now is the capital infusion. Um, what would have been a better way for him to go about it? Well, I think that the better way is he should have, uh, first of all, he should have thought through exactly what prices he was going to buy these assets at um, rather than not knowing, because that's the critical question about whether the taxpayer is is protected or not. I mean, if he buys them at a low enough price, it, they'll make a profit. Too high a price, it's, it's a giveaway to the banks. None of that seemed to be thought out beforehand. And I think that that, uh, that was a pivotal uh, issue uh, that uh, that was not, not considered. Um, do you feel like he needed to reassure people also? I mean, was that part of what he should have been doing at that point? Well, uh, personally, the, the Fed has more powers to be able to reassure uh, you know, my feeling is is that uh, the, both the Fed and the Treasury should make some statements about standing behind certain loans. Now, the Federal Reserve has is now standing behind commercial paper, um, uh, but they need to extend that to interbank lending. Uh, they need to extend that to all the loans that are made on at the LIBOR rate, which is uh, extraordinarily high now relative to other rates in the economy. 
there's a lot of things that I think could have gone first rather than buying distressed assets um, from, from the banks. How, how did you get the name Wizard of War? Well, I guess I've been putting out advice for a long time. <laughs> and in the long term, I've been bullish. And that's, that's the right stance to be. Uh, and I believe so even today. I think that people who buy stocks today will be uh, well rewarded in the future. I, I will also say it's going to be very volatile in the short run. If you, need, if you need the money next week, next month, stay out of the market. But if you can afford to put it away for a few years, you will be happy that you bought stocks. Jeremy Siegel, thanks very much. Thank you. And thanks, David, for that tape. You know, it occurs to me that the problem with being somebody like Henry Paulson is that you're going to be critiqued by incredibly smart people like Jeremy Siegel. And I think there's a lot of frustration among economists that they haven't been consulted more. I've talked to so many economists who say, when was the day or the week of hearings on Capitol Hill or very high-level public discussion of this entire issue? Before they brought the plan in. Before they brought the plan in and executed the plan. And i got to say, I'm sympathetic to that. There's so many smart people have been looking at banking crisis and fiscal crisis, really smart people. And what I find is the vast majority of left-wing and right-wing, Keynesian, neo-Keynesian, Friedmanian, Austrian school, all the different spectrums, they, they, they seem to kind of cohere around a view. And I, I, I do kind of wish that there was a more public discussion among people like Jeremy Siegel and others. Yeah. I have a test for you, smart guy, if you're up for it. I have with me right now Aaron Brenner. Aaron Brenner is asking a question that I've gotten several times, and I have over here to my left Adam Davidson. Now, Adam, I know it's been a long week, but Aaron is going to ask you a question, and I want you to answer that question in 60 seconds or less. I'm going to ask Caitlin to keep us honest on the time. Actually, Caitlin is punching us up a clock right now. Wait, does his question count towards the time? No. All right. Adam, what exactly is a write-off? I understand that uh, banks are planning on writing off more uh, money related to real estate. They've already written off some $700 billion worth, and the people are saying that they're going to write off $1.5 trillion. When, What does it mean when they do this, and if they're going to do more, why haven't they done it already? So a, a write-off or a write-down is, is when a – when someone thinks they have something of a certain value and then they realize it's actually worth less than that. So if you're a business and you own a bunch of, uh, I don't know, copy machines and you thought they were worth a thousand bucks and then you learn that they weren't very good and they're only worth a hundred dollars, you have to write down the nine hundred dollar difference on your books. The reason that's such a big topic in the news right now is that is the cause of this crisis. All these banks and hedge funds and others, had these assets, this toxic waste stuff, this mortgage-related, subprime mortgage-related assets that they thought was worth trillions and are now finding out is worth less. The problem is we have no idea what it's worth. That's the whole reason the U.S. government is stepping in. So every bank truly, and this is absolutely true, has to basically guess. They have to come up with a number. So they keep writing it down to the number they think is right, and then they often have to write it down again when they realized the number they came up with was too optimistic. That was about 66 seconds, Adam. I thought it was pretty good. Aaron, do you need a follow-up? Well, did did that answer your question? Yes, I, I guess it did. I guess one question I would have is if um, there – what does it mean when they say they've already written some down, but there's going to be another, you know, wave of these? 
Sure. So, so normally what you would do is let's say you have a bond and the bond is trading in the marketplace and it was, and it was $100 yesterday and now it's in the marketplace and it's trading at $90. You know the price. You know it was 100 yesterday and today it's $10 less. You mean people are selling your bond again and again? So yeah, I mean, mean you have one and other people have others, you know, like Ford or the U.S. government or, you know, GM or whatever will issue bonds and they'll issue a lot of them with the same terms, the same details on the same day. And so if you have one for $100 and I have one for $100, I hold on to mine. You sell yours to Caitlin for $90. That gives me a sense of, oh, okay, the market price is $90. So I write mine down in my internal books just so for my own reference. Okay, I thought I had 100 bucks. I really only have 90 bucks. But the problem with these subprime assets is they are not trading. You're not selling yours to Caitlin. She's not selling hers to Josh. Nobody's selling any of them. There's no information about There's what no information worth. about what they're worth. So each bank invents a number. And what we've seen is for the same exact bond, one bank might say, well, I think it's worth 84 cents on the dollar. And another bank might say, yeah, I don't think that's right. I think it's worth 32 cents on the dollar. And when you hear about this crisis of confidence, the inability of banks to get anyone else to lend them money, this is a big part of it. Uh, you know, one bank, let's say just to pick a name randomly out of a hat. Make a name up for us. All right. Bank of Conaway, Conaway Bank, wants to borrow money from Kenny Bank. And Conaway Bank says, hey, Kenny Bank, we're good for it. Why don't you lend us a billion dollars? And Kenny Bank says, well, wait a second. You wrote those assets down by 40 cents or 40 percent, but my hunch is you didn't write it down enough. I don't trust you. I think you're lying. And so I'm not going to lend you any money. So that's the incentive basically for your bank to do another write down, to get confidence back, to make people think that you really mean it when you say you have enough money to pay people back. That's and. Then in addition, there's just new information. There's more foreclosures. The subprime crisis deepens. We're heading into a recession, which suggests there's going to be even more foreclosures. And so that damages the value of these assets. So when, so when people say there's going to be another wave of write-offs or write-downs, what they mean is that prices are going to continue to fall. Well, we don't know what the price is, but it means because there is well, no price yeah. for these assets because they're not trading. So what it means is banks chose an arbitrary value last week that was and now it's hard for them to justify that in the marketplace. They're going to have to do it again. They're going to have to do it again. The banks would love to just say, "Oh, I think it's all worth, you know, 100% of its original value," but they know they can't get away with that because regulators and other private actors, you know, the people they want to do business with, are going to say, "I don't believe you." And so I'm not going to do business with you. So the banks have to write down the value in a more credible way. Aaron Brenner of New York City, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you so much, Laura, and thank you, Caitlin and Josh, for uh, yet another Planet Money wonderful week. And uh, you can check us out online at npr.org slash money. I'm Laura Conaway. I'm heading for the weekend. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm heading for the weekend. Yeah.